Man, it's great to be here. Uh, I have, I've looked forward to this uh, for a really long time, and uh, probably ever since, honestly, ever since Dr. Gorvet came here to be your president, uh, I was with him in West Michigan for many, many years, and when he left, I said, hey, I'm going to come up there, and I'm going to get my lobster, and uh, I, finally, I finally made it, but there's no lobster, uh, none. Not that I've seen. I've been snowed into a hotel, uh, so uh, it's great to be here uh, with you, and uh, I feel like I'm among friends, and uh, I know many of you and uh, I do apologize for the weather. I feel somewhat responsible. Um, last Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, I was supposed to speak at Journey Wesleyan Church in Fredericton. Anybody from Fredericton? Any Fredericton people? Nobody at all, apparently. Oh, somebody. Okay. I was supposed to speak at Journey Wesleyan Church in Fredericton, and the blizzard hit, and uh, so they canceled service. The week before that, I was supposed to speak at Waterline Church uh, in Noblesville, Indiana, in like a Indiana blizzard hit. It was like a flurry, a skiff of snow, and they canceled church there. Uh, and then the time that I was supposed to speak before that, a snowstorm hit. And so literally Sunday morning, my pastor, John Freed, sent me a text and he said, hey, I don't want to point out the obvious, but the last three times you were supposed to speak, a blizzard hit. Do you feel a little bit like Jonah? And uh, I think I do. I, I think I do. But it's great to be here uh, with you and uh, uh, we'll get to know each other better over the next uh, four sessions that we're together uh, like this and over the next couple days. Jackie Vick's with me. Jackie's a mobilizer on our team. Would you welcome Jackie, everybody? Yeah, if you know Jackie, uh, Jackie's great. Um, I'm praying that this week would be a change everything kind of week for you. That's what I'm praying. I'm praying that this week would be a week that you would look back um, at some point down the road, 20, 30, 50 years down the road, and you would look back on this week and you would say, that was a week where God really worked in my heart. That was a week where God really spoke to me. And this is a great place. I mean, I've watched your chapels online quite a bit along the way, trying to get to know who you are a little bit better. I mean, if, you, if God isn't speaking to you in here, he, he's not going to speak to you anywhere, okay? Because this is a great place with great professors who are pouring into your life. But I'm just praying that God would speak to you in a special way this week, and it would change everything. I was thinking back to change everything moments in my life, and honestly, the one that first came to my mind was when uh, my wife and I, Julie, were dating. I have one wife and three boys, which is far better than three wives and one boy, I want you to know. And so I have one wife and three boys, and, and uh, Julie and I were dating, and, and there came that point in our relationship where I knew I liked her a lot. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't like, like it was a little bit more than like. And, and we were on campus, we were sitting in front of the library at Indiana Wesleyan, we were sitting in front of the library there, and, and I said to her, we were, we were holding hands, I said to her, I said, um, hey babe, um, I always have called her babe, like hey babe, um, I, I, like Sonny and Cher, like hey babe, I, I said, um, I have something I want to tell you. And she said, yeah, you know, what's that? And I was thinking, I want to tell her I love her. Like, I want to say I love you, but I was scared to death because I knew if I said that, like, it would absolutely change everything. And so I said, I really, I really like you. Like, I, I really like you. And, and she's like, well, I, I like you too. Like, you're, you're pretty nice. And like, why are you holding my hand, you know? And, uh, and I said, no, no, no. Like, I, I think I like you more than like you. Like I, like, I like you like you. And she's like, what do you mean? And like, I literally said, I said, I, and then I, like, I almost vomited out of my mouth. I said, I, 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 I love, I love you. 
I love you. And she said to me, that's nice. She said, that is really nice, she said. Now, just so you know, guys, like, if you, don't, if you think all you're going to get is that, that's nice back when you say I love you, you better just save it, okay? Just sit on it, all right? And so I was like, no, that's nice. But it changed everything. A few weeks later, she said, I love you too. When I asked her to marry me, by the way, this isn't a relationships talk. When I asked her to marry me, I said, Would, I'd, like, I'd like you to be my wife. And she said, are we even dating? She said, because we'd never defined the relationship. She's very practical. I apologize. So I'm praying that this week will be a changes everything kind of week. And I like to laugh. I want you to know that. But I've also, as I've thought about this week, I've thought this is, this is serious stuff. Um, I mean really serious stuff. I was a pastor for 17 years, and I could still be a pastor. Nobody ever voted me out of the church. Nobody ever kicked me out of the church. I could, I could still be a pastor. We planted a church in large part. Uh, your, your president, Dr. Mark Gorbett, spoke really into my life and challenged me to do that, and I did that, and, and I loved that. I loved the church is still up and running and living and breathing and, and having ministry in the community. But after 17 years, I, I couldn't get away from the numbers. I mean, I couldn't get away from the billions of people that have never heard in fact, in 1950, there were 2.5 billion people in the world. 1950, there were 2.5 billion people in the world. In 2015, there are 7.2, about this, plus or minus, like statistically speaking, there are 7.2 billion people in the world. Out of that 7.2 billion people in the world, 2.2 billion of those people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. I mean, 2.2 billion is a lot of people. You invite 2.2 billion people over for supper, and you're going to need more craft dinner. Like 2.2 billion. I like that you call it craft dinner and not, not mac and cheese up here. You're going to need a lot of craft dinner for 2.2 billion people. But there's this many people that don't know Jesus. That's a lot of zeros. And, and I'll be totally honest. My wife, she balances the checkbook in our house, and so I'm not really great with all the numbers, but, but I had to look up how many zeros you use when you count to billion. Because I don't count to billion every day of my life. Five billion people. And here's what wrecks me. You think about like, how big that number is. You try to get your head around that number, and, and here's, what I, here's kind of where my brain raced. Uh, this is a stadium. It's called uh, Rungrado Mayday Stadium. It's the largest athletic stadium in the world. It, it's in uh, North Korea. It seats 150,000 people. This is a stadium that, that is hallowed ground for me. This is the University of Michigan, the University of Michigan. And I want you to know, I, my wife asked me what I wanted for Christmas. I said, I want Jim Harbaugh to be the football coach at the University of Michigan. And you know who the football coach is at the University of Michigan? Jim Harbaugh. You know who caused it? Not my wife is who caused it. So here's Michigan Stadium. It seats 109,000 people on game day, what some people might call idol worship. I, I, I've been there. I, I like it. You, you go to the next picture. This is Penn State University. Univer woo, woo, University Park, Pennsylvania. It seats 107,282 people. Michigan's even better than them in attendance. 107,000 people. Now here's why I'm showing you athletic stadiums. To total 5 billion people, you would have to sell out these three stadiums 
for this long. Every day for 22 years, four months, and 15 days. My Bible says that the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And here, here's what I know. These aren't numbers. These are people. These aren't numbers. These are people. See, I could, I could tell you statistics all day long. I mean, I could tell you all day long about the lostness of the world and the lostness of countries. Like 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists that don't know a single Christian. I could tell you all day long stories about that, but, but it comes down to one person. These aren't numbers. They're people. They're people who one author has said are waiting at the other end of your obedience. They're just waiting for somebody to show up in their country and, and build a relationship with them and share Christ with them. They're just waiting for somebody who's willing to change their address and say, I, I can't, I can't, this is, it isn't that here is bad and there is good, but I know that God wants me to, to speak to people that have never been spoken before to about the name of Jesus. So don't hear just the statistics this week. I want you to realize they're people. They're individuals like you and me. They have the same needs, they have the same wants, they have the same longings, they have the same desires. They're somebody's mom, they're somebody's dad, they're somebody's son, they're somebody's daughter, they're somebody's brother, they're somebody's sister. It's the people. I remember uh, last summer, um, I was in, um, on one of our Turkic Arabic fields in a Muslim country. And I remember at one point we went to a huge market, and this market was just jam-packed, and, and it was just packed with people. And we'd all kind of just said, hey, we're going to kind of take our own time. We're going to wander a little bit through the market, and we'll meet back up together here in about an hour or so. And so I'm kind of wandering through the market, and it, it's just crowds of people. I mean, it's like, it's like Walmart on Black Friday. I mean, it's just crowds of people. And, and I'm walking through the market, and here's what kept going through my head. None of these people have ever heard about Jesus. None of these people have ever heard about Jesus. And then here's the next thing that went through my head. Like, what in the world am I going to do about that? See, for a long time, I wrestled with missions. I'll just like, be really honest. I, I resisted missions. My wife and I nearly broke up because of missions, because my wife felt strongly led to missions, and I didn't. I, I, it wasn't that I was resistant to it. It wasn't that I was opposed to it. It wasn't that I thought it was bad. I just didn't know where my part in it was. I didn't know, like, where was it that God would use me the most in it? Like, I didn't, I didn't want to be the missionary that showed up with slides like of some lady's tumor from Nigeria. Like, I didn't want to be that. You didn't grow up with slides. I apologize. I'm dating myself there. But like, I remember the missionaries would roll in with a slideshow, and I thought, I don't think that's me. Like, what, what part do I play? And I remember walking through that market, and I remember thinking, I'll just do everything I can, God to get as many people as I can to change their address. Uh, with your help, God, I'm going to pray like I've never prayed before that there would be laborers sent out into the harvest field. See, in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be here all four times that we're together like this. The, the Bible says this in verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, when he was looking out over the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had, he had compassion on them. Here's a question for you. It'll be on the screen. What is it that wrecks you? I mean, what is it? I don't mean what bothers you. 
I mean, what is it that wrecks you? Like you may say, well, I, I, you know, snowstorms, oh, it's so horrible. Like, no, that's not wrecking you, that's bothering you. Or, oh, I hate it when my cell phone battery runs down too fast. By the way, I do too. I, I freak out. Every time my battery gets down below 20%, like I get really, really nervous. And so it, I'm not, but that doesn't wreck me. Like that doesn't stop me in my tracks. What is it that, that wrecks you? Years ago, I was in Cambodia. And I was sitting in a little market in Cambodia, or in a little restaurant, I should say, called the Californian Restaurant. And interesting to have a restaurant called Californian in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And we're sitting there in the restaurant, and this little boy came in. And this little kid comes in who's probably the age of, of my son, Miles. And he comes walking in, and he's, uh, paper for a quarter, paper for a quarter, he said, paper for a quarter. And he was selling day-old New York Times newspapers. And, and I reach into my pocket because, to be honest, I like reading the paper. I love reading the paper. And so I reach into my pocket. And when I reached into my pocket, the, the owner of the restaurant came around the counter. We were the only people in the restaurant. And he yelled out. He said, ignore him, ignore him, ignore him, and he'll just go away. Just ignore that boy, and he'll leave. And I did. I left the quarter in my pocket. And I ignored that kid. What wrecks me? is that there are kids like that all across the country of Cambodia that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. See, what, whatever it is that wrecks you is what interrupts your day and it changes the pattern of your life. See, if I was to draw a line back to when God really spoke into my life about being involved in global mission and saying, not that the local church is bad and global mission is good, but saying, I have to do this, I could draw a line back to a table in a diner in Phnom Penh, Cambodia when a little kid got shooed off by the owner and he's probably been shooed off by everybody else in his life. Whatever it is that wrecks you is that thing which interrupts your day and it changes the pattern of your life. And Jesus, when he had compassion on them, th this isn't like he was bothered by the snowstorm. He was wrecked. Like, I mean, there was something in him. He, he felt it in his gut. There was something in him that broke over this. And when I think about Jesus and I read in, in Scripture about times that he was wrecked, times that he felt deep compassion, there were at least a couple of times that I want to highlight to you. One is when he saw the crowds. That's what we just read here. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And you say, well, why was it? Was it that he didn't like crowds? Jesus just didn't like, you know, being around all the people? No, it was that he saw the mass of humanity and their own lostness. And he realized that there were all these people out there proclaiming, you know, the way to live and the right way to live, but nobody was proclaiming the true path. Nobody was proclaiming life that's found in Jesus, the mass of humanity, they were harassed and helpless. He saw lives that were just devastated. They were just wandering. They were trying to follow rules, religious rules and religious patterns, but they didn't, they didn't know him. They didn't have relationship with him, the crowds. He also saw the one. In Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus saw this man, and, and he says he was filled with compassion for the man, and he reached out and he touched the man. So it wasn't just the crowds that caused Jesus to have compassion. It wasn't like Jesus was caught up with the numbers. It was that Jesus also saw one person, and when he sat face to face with one person, he had compassion on him, and he reached out and he touched the man. 
There's a whole lot of cases in Scripture that speak to someone being wrecked, someone feeling that deep compassion. But here's what I want you to get. Like at the very core of who you are, mission must be motivated by compassion. Mission must be motivated by compassion. Don't, don't become a missionary just because you feel guilty. Like, oh, I, I got to do something. I got to do something. Don't, don't become a missionary j- just because, well, you know, I go to Bible college. My friend became a missionary. Don't become a missionary like one person told me. They, they wanted to be a missionary to Australia. Who else would like to be a missionary to Australia? I'd like to. Australia sounds nice. I don't like Vegemite, but I can tell you right now, Australia sounds nice. And they said, I said, why do you want to go? Like, why do you want to serve? Why do you want to do this? And the other, they said, I, I really like the beach. And I heard that the beach in Australia is amazing. We said no to that person, I want you to know. But the be- don't go because of the beach. If you want to go to the beach, buy an airline ticket and go to the beach. If you want to go somewhere warm, fly to Jamaica. If you want to, seriously, do it. But, but there was something, if there's something in you that says, when I hear about the lostness of people, that I just can't stand it, that it wrecks me, then go. Then raise your hand and say, here am I, send me. And, and, and don't wait another day. Just like say, I mean, just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my education. I'm going to learn all I can learn. I'm going to finish this thing out. And, and I'm going I'm to go. Because true compassion always results in action. True compassion always results in action. We just did a spiritual gifts test in our office. My lowest gift, Dr. Gorvette, my lowest gift, I think I have this in common with your Mr. President here, is Mercy. That's my lowest gift. It's kind of weird. One of my higher gifts is giving, and my wife is like, how does that work? And I'm like, I have no clue. That's why I go to a counselor. I don't know. So one of my lowest gifts is mercy. So I have to work hard on this compassion thing. I have to work hard at saying, God, what is it that ultimately really does break me? What is it ultimately that really does stir me? Because true compassion always results in action. So what, what are the responses then? I think there's three this morning that I want to share with you. Here's the first one. You go. You go. Uh, read the Bible sometime. Read the Gospels. And look how many times the word go shows up. How many times Jesus is talking to somebody and he says, that's really, really nice that we're here. Now go. Or he'll interact with somebody and, and he'll say, this is, they'll say, I want to be your follower. He'll say, no, go back to your family and tell them first. Or he'll say, go into all the world. You You go. For global mission to be fulfilled, friends, for global mission to be fulfilled, somebody, ordinary people like you and me, ordinary people like you and me with a past and a testimony of God's grace in our lives, ordinary people like you and me are going to have to change our address. That's what it's going to take. If the mission is going to be fulfilled, somebody's going to have to change their address. Somebody's going to have to go and go and, and stay. Like, I, I don't, I, I'm not anti-short-term trips. I'm really not. I've been on a whole lot of them in my life. I think short-term trips have their place. But what if you said, I'm going to go and I'm going to stay? I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve a full term. I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to see this as my, as my home. Here, here's the second one. Go and, and touch. Go and touch. Jesus, whenever he, when he had compassion, he reached out and he, and he touched. A man named Brad Bandy says, oftentimes people think of mission work in terms of an experience rather than a relationship. We see people often as a problem to be solved, but God sees people as people to be known. See, this isn't a problem to be solved. 
These are people to be known. So masses of humanity sound like numbers to us, but to Heather Eugedic, who's a missionary to Albania, if she was standing right here today, she would tell you about the last year of her life living in Albania, and she would tell you a story about a girl that she met and that she developed a relationship with and that they spent tons of time together and they drank a whole lot of coffee together and they interacted and they laughed and they told stories and she shared Jesus over and over and over and the girl listened over and over and over and one day, one day, that girl said yes to Jesus. One day, that girl met Heather on the street and she's sobbing and she said, I want what you have. I want the relationship that you have. And that girl, who's part of that five billion, went from, went from unreached to reached because somebody changed their address. They, go, they, did, they went and they also touched. And here's the last one, go and risk. Go and risk. I had a mom call me a while back. I was talking, I'd been interacting with her um, daughter a little bit and uh, about mission stuff. And the mom called me and the mom said, mom was pretty wound up and the mom said, um, I can't believe you do this. I'm like, can't believe I do what? And she said, uh, you send young, vulnerable people all around the world into dangerous places. And I said, uh, for one thing, I said, I've been to a few of those places. I haven't been to all of them. And I can tell you, like, like I felt pretty safe when I was there where our missionaries are. I felt pretty safe. Like, I, is there risk? Yeah, there's risk, but I felt pretty safe. And she said, I'm not happy at all that my daughter's interested in this. I'm not happy at all in this. And I remember saying to that uh, wonderful God-fearing woman on the phone that day, ma'am, I can't promise you that nothing will happen to your daughter. I can't. I mean, you watch the evening news, and ISIS is a whole new part of our vocabulary now. So I, I can't promise you that nothing will happen to your daughter, but I can promise you this. If people like your daughter don't go and they don't risk, there will be people who, who will die in these countries that will never hear the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe that to my toes. I mean, I, I don't just believe that. I know that. And so it's going to take someone risking. And, and I told her a story. It's a story I want to tell you. I'd started this job with Global Partners, and one day my boss, Dr. Dennis Jackson, we named our youngest son to honor him. We named him Jackson to honor Dr. Jackson. That's how I got my job, pretty much. And so uh, we, um, uh, Dennis said to me, he said, Dr. Jackson said, um, he, he said, Chad, he said, I need you to go to Sierra Leone. And he said, we've got, some, we've got a hospital there, and I need you to go to Sierra Leone, and I need you to kind of work with some problems that we're having there at the hospital. Now, I'd never been to Sierra Leone. I'd never even, I had to find it on the map, to be honest. I had to go and think, okay, that's West Africa, I know. And this was before Ebola, I want you to know, so nobody freak out about that. And so I was thinking about, okay, I'm going to go to Sierra Leone. And so I'm like, how do you get there? So I emailed our travel agent, Patrick. And I said, Patrick, how do you get to Sierra Leone? And Patrick gave me my, gave me my tickets, and you fly. To get to Sierra Leone, you go from Indianapolis to Chicago, and then you go from Chicago to Brussels, Belgium. It's the quietest airport I've ever been in my life. It's like a, it's like a, like, a chapel. I mean, it's unbelievable. You go to that airport, nobody, like everybody whispers. I'm like, why are you all whispering? Brussels, Belgium. You fly from Brussels, Belgium to a town called Dakar. Now, you don't get off the, uh, you don't get off the, uh, the plane in Dakar. The plane just stops. It lands. It lets off a group of people, and it gets more people on. Now, 
I, I tried to get off the plane because I, thought, I didn't know. I'd been sleeping. So I woke up, tried to get off the plane. I was halfway down the gangway. They're like, sir, 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 wrong city. And I was like, that was a near miss. And so I got back on the plane. And then you fly to Lungi, which is the international airport for Freetown, South Africa. Dr. H.C. Wilson, that some of you may know, I call him Bishop. Uh, Dr. Wilson would say that the Freetown airport is the only airport in the world that when you get there, you haven't gotten anywhere because you get there and you have another hour across a bay on a boat, that, on a ferry that's never been regulated by any government agency whatsoever. They got like a, like a three-year-old kid driving the boat and you, you get across the ferry and you're, you're pounded in there with all these people. We sat in the VIP lounge. It was $2 and that meant you had a toilet is what that meant. And so we, uh, they were all packed in there together. You get across... And they put you in the back. Are you tired yet? You get in the back of a Land Rover with some guy you've never met who, who you don't know his language. He doesn't know your language. And he says, we'll be there soon. Now, soon to me means like 20 minutes. Soon to me means McDonald's. I ordered my burger and fries and poutine. By the way, y'all are onto something with that. And I, and I want that. And so like, that's soon. Well, you drive three hours outside of the town. Not a stoplight in, in Freetown. Not a single stoplight. I'm like, where are the stoplights? You go all the way out to McKinney. It's paved road from there to McKinney. You get to McKinney. There's a huge Wesleyan church in McKinney. The Wesleyan church is headquartered in McKinney. It's an amazing place. And so you get to McKinney. The driver will turn to you and he'll say, great news. Great news. Only 50 more miles. Now, I hear, I don't know how to translate that into kilometers. I apologize. But he says, only 50 more miles. And, and so you're thinking to yourself, only 50 miles. Like, this is fantastic. 50 miles, that's, that's like 45 minutes. Like, we can knock this thing out. And he turns left off of the paved road onto this road right here. Y'all see that? See my head right there? It's bowed in prayer. Uh, right there. That's me. Everybody in Sierra Leone, they carry a box of Kleenex on their dashboard because they weep half the time when they're driving. You go down this road, and you're on this road, ready, for four hours, people. Four hours. If you want any encouragement, the driver will turn to you, and he'll say, great news, great news. The road is even better than it used to be. I'm like, better? Like, better? What, was the, what, what in the world was the road before? Straight jungle? This is unbelievable. Like, like. You're, you're going down the road. There's the, it's like everything you've ever seen out of a missions movie. There's, there's like people bathing in the river. There's kids bathing. There's a man going to the bathroom. There's people doing their laundry. Like you're just going down the road. People on motorbikes are whizzing by. And I'm literally, it, I've been a lot of places in the world, but I remember in that moment, and I'll be totally honest, I had a flat-out panic attack. I mean a flat-out panic attack. Like give me my Paxil panic attack. Because I just remember thinking, how do you get back? Like, if we're going four hours down that road, like, to get back home is going to take me a day and a half, and I kind of like home. Like, this is scary to me. And it took four hours. And at the end of that road is this place. It's the Kamakui Wesleyan Hospital. In my mind, it's one of the uh, most amazing places you'll ever see in your entire life. Uh, back in the late, um, back many, many years ago, the very first Wesleyan missionaries went down that road when it was worse. And um, they started that hospital right there. I asked Dr. Bob Bagley, who I understand was here yesterday, um, I asked Dr. Bob Bagley, I said, why did, why did they start the hospital all the way out here? 
why didn't they start in the city? I mean, like, there's people in the city. Like, why didn't they start? And there's paved roads in the city and restaurants and all of that. Like, why didn't they start in the city? And he said, they started it out here because the city had health care and these people didn't. And so the poorest of the poor go to this hospital. Thousands of people depend on that hospital for their health care. The next closest hospital is, is down the road on the back of a motorbike. When I was there, a woman was in full tilt labor and they couldn't treat her at the hospital because of the nature of her, of her uh, pregnancy. And they put a full tilt pregnant woman on the back of a moped who was in full tilt labor and they sent her back down that road. I told my wife that and she said, you know, I've, I've birthed three kids and I thought it was pretty hard. It was easy. It was easy compared to that. Halfway down that road, and I'll wrap this up, the band's gonna come back up. Halfway down that road is this place. And it's, um, it's a cemetery that the very first Wesleyan church, or very first, uh, that the Wesleyan church in Sierra Leone, I should say, um, has kind of preserved. The only people buried in this cemetery are Wesleyan missionaries. And they're the very first people who went down that road. And uh, when I stood there, I was wrecked. When I, when I stood there, I looked at Reverend Usman Forna, Dr. Usman Forna, and I, who's the national leader of Sierra Leone, and I said, Dr. Forna, I said, this is, this is holy ground. Like, this is a holy place. And Dr. Forna had tears in his eyes, and Dr. Forna said, we tell all the people you talk to that we need help, we tell all the people you talk to that we need help. And I remember just thinking, I will. You go to that cemetery, and here's a missionary that they had packed their belongings in a casket years and years ago. Our missionaries don't do that anymore. Typically, it's a carry-on. But uh, they packed their belongings in, a ca in their own caskets, in wooden boxes. You, you look there, and here's mom and dad, and next to that is child. And for them, it was go, go and stay. For them, it was go and touch. And for them, it was go and risk. They missed birthday parties and weddings and special occasions. But for them, they did it. They did it um, because of something inside them that wrecked them and that they couldn't get away from it. And so they went down that road. Now here's how I want to close. I'd like you to bow your heads and just reflect with me for a minute. Um, I'd like you just to reflect on what is the road that God is calling you to go down? Like, what is the path? What is the road? It may be a road that says, God, for me to be greater, more heavily involved in your global mission. It may be saying, God, I know you want me to change my address and I'm scared to death about that. Or it may be a road that says, I'm gonna plant a church that waves a flag for the globe like no other church has waved before. And we need a thousand churches like that. Or maybe a road that says, I've been putting off sharing Christ with that person for so long. I've been writing for putting off writing that letter. You know what the road is in your life. I'd like you to just take a moment and reflect on that.
Tenemos Zen, tenemos Fausto.